0: All right, we're here. We're rolling. Welcome back to At World's End. It's been a bit of a hiatus. Quite a lot has happened in the so-called world since the last episode. And feels like exactly the kind of event that requires a podcast. And the last few have really been kind of up in the clouds. We're talking about books. We're talking about sort of culture. Hopefully we can ascend to the clouds by the end of this, but we're going to start very much on the ground. Start with the the situation as it currently stands. Um, I'm talking, of course, about the coronavirus, and it looks like it's just about to get fairly bumpy. Economy is somewhat blown up or in the process of being blown up. People are generally working from home, not working, being laid off. It's extraordinary times exciting times, Um, great times, you could say, but not necessarily in the, this is the kind of way we always want to live, just sort of momentous, important, um, worth paying attention to and appreciating the ways in which the last two weeks are, at least for me and probably most people around my age, not like anything we have ever experienced in our lives. So uh, without further digression, let's dive into episode four, Civilization is Canceled. But I said we would start on the ground level. So let's start on the ground level. The ground level is we have a pandemic on our hands. Uh, Where this thing lands, it's very hard to say, but uh, society in the United States and much of the world is on sort of maximum readiness, maximum lockdown because of it. Um, I do have to say, you know, basically sort of dude I called it on the mask situation. I don't know if people were following it at the time, but in the early days of the outbreak, we had information from the attorney general, Azar. We had tweets from a bunch of jokers on Twitter. We, and by, by jokers, I mean MDs. So a bunch of MD jokers on Twitter who were doing a familiar movement, which is, they say, we're experts and sort of your common sense intuition about what is and is not effective at stopping you know, a virus is actually wrong. you got to listen to experts on this one because you don't really know anything about viruses or anything. And, you know, me, I'm sitting there, I'm more or less agreeing with the sentiment that I have no idea how this virus works. I don't know anything about biology. Really, the whole thing is unknown to me. And frankly, as much as I would say, well, okay, read for a few days, figure out for yourself uh, how the virus works, all the functioning, I think you know, I'm just a little out of my depth when it comes to, can a virus get through a mask? And am I better uh, positioned to make that decision than, you know, the attorney general, CDC, a bunch of doctors on Twitter? So I just sort of went with my gut and said, I'm just going to essentially say the same thing, which is these guys are wrong, but I'm just not going to research it. And Turns out I kind of called it. So the masks are extremely effective, especially the N95. And it was later sent to me after I sort of took this uh, stubborn stand that there was a paper published in 2011, which did a study looking at different viral outbreaks, including the MERS and SARS outbreaks. And it found that the social distancing, eh, kind of effective. The travel stuff, basically not effective. And the masks were like way, way effective. The masks were the most effective think. And N95, especially effective. So you know you don't want to gloat on this kind of thing, but I think it's worth saying this is a win for the little guy. This is a win for common sense against the jokers on Twitter, the MDs on Twitter, the uh, attorney general who has a lot of egg on his face right now. And why is that important? We are in an extraordinary time absolutely extraordinary. I don't think there's really been anything like it ever. I mean, when you talk about something like the, the, the Spanish flu or the Black Death, yes, uh, we're not even close to their level in terms of deaths, and maybe we never will be. But in terms of the level of social and economic change that has occurred in the past two weeks, it's, it's really up there it's really really up there. And so we just have to we have to be aware that we're living in a historical moment. Now, whenever you look at the date, you know, whatever it is, 2019 or 2020 or 2021, I think people are now more and more aware because of all of the important anniversaries that sort of happened in the last in the last decade that we really are hoping we don't track with the 20th century. You know, 1914, bad year. 2014, I don't know if it was a good year, I don't know if it was a bad year. wasn't as bad as 1914. We avoided the World War I thing, right? 2018, good year, bad year, who knows? But wasn't as bad as 1918, right? No World War, no global pandemic. 2020, okay, you know, maybe the pandemic's coming a little late. I think a lot of people are thinking this. But it's also worth remembering that there was a lot going on in the 20th century in those sort of four-year periods. And if you go back to 1920 or 1918, this kind of period, yes, there's you have the end of World War I, you have the global pandemic. You also have the Russian Revolution. And who's one of the key guys in the Russian Revolution? Vladimir Lenin. And a very famous Lenin quote, which, you know, works well if you're starting a revolution, also happens to work well in a pandemic, is there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. Now, this is what this is a quote that the statistician would maybe say, oh, you know, I guess it's uh, the variance is not normally distributed or something like that. Right. It's 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 a lot of nothing. And then all of a sudden, everything changes. You know, now there's even a, a debate. Did Lenin ever ever say this? Did he say something close to it? This is, again, a sort of not important historical question. Uh, maybe someone wants like a, a, a thesis out of it, but it's not important at all because either he said it or he didn't say it, but he lived it. So it, it basically works. And we now have, of course, in the back of all our minds this feeling of, it's unclear where this is going to land. But wherever wherever the coronavirus sort of puts the world in a few months or a year or where, is going to be so different from where it began, it's hard to even say what the consequences of it would be and will be. So I, I can't get into the business of predicting how this will change sort of the next 20 years versus what would have happened without the pandemic. However, In the lead up to the pandemic, there was a class of people, really two groups of people that I think belong to the same class, that I think show exactly the kind of age we are in. And I want to go into that, and I want to sort of play that back onto the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, And who knows? Maybe that's helpful for prediction. Maybe it's only helpful for... Historical context, maybe it's just entertainment, who knows? But uh, that's the goal. So, if you all remember, as the virus was kind of in its very early stages, mostly in China, a few cases here, a few cases there, everyone was sort of checking out, oh, what's the cruise ship update? Wouldn't that be terrible to be on a cruise ship? There was a camp that was sort of the, let's take it nice and easy on the restrictions. And mostly these were. Again, the, sort of the usual suspects, CNBC pundits, um, people who c- consider themselves centrists, boring most of the time, don't have a lot to say, but, you know, they're there. We sort of listen to them um, as white noise. And their consensus, kind of the libertarian center, left and right consensus was, it's not a big deal. The economy, we really don't need to blow it up. It's going so well for so many people. Um We're living, in some ways, in the best times. One way to screw that up that would be pretty silly, according to them, is to overreact to really not such a big deal virus. Okay, I'm not saying anyone listened to them, but that that was at least a view that was out there. Now we're a few weeks past that, maybe even a month past the peak of that view in popularity. And something very strange happened. You saw for, you know, maybe 12 or 18 hours, the UK considered going for the herd immunity strategy, which is actually equivalent with no strategy. (laughs) If you sort of look at what... It's essentially saying virus is very contagious, somewhat deadly, can't be stopped. Let's not, you know, go out of our way to delay the inevitable, and cause more damage than we have to. And if you notice, again, very interesting how these things line up. The do-nothing in the early days crowd is actually the same as the do-nothing when it gets bad crowd, despite the fact that they've taken completely the opposite position on what's going to happen with the virus. At first, it's not a big deal. We don't need to do anything. And then it's it's such a big deal, we could never stop it, so we don't need to do anything. And I was going to do a sort of montage of all of the people who go on TV or write op-eds, of you know basically all of the dumb stuff they said. It was very predictably incorrect. But I then sort of realized, you know, it's almost shooting the messenger if you do that, because most of the people who are publicly saying it's not a big deal, or there's nothing we can do to stop it. They're just sort of vacuous human beings, and they're just repeating what they have heard from other people, which they think to be the cosmopolitan consensus. The cosmopolitan consensus was that masks would not be effective. It was that this virus would not be a big deal, and I would say it is now that very little can be done to stop it. This group, then, that wants you to do nothing in either case, when do nothing when it's not a big deal and do nothing when it is a big deal, I think puts all of us in a strange position. And that position is that staying home is in some ways the active act. That being as passive as possible is a kind of active form of consensus breaking activity. And I think we shouldn't be tricked into thinking, well, what happened in this case was that there was, you know unclear levels of information, and people who are in charge of basically giving advice, giving information, opining on the subjects of the day, they just sort of got this one wrong, but it's very different. It's very different than uh, things that have occurred in the past sort of 15, 20 years. And it's like, uh, this is a bit of a tangent from where this episode is supposed to go. But I have to just say, can anyone think of anything in the last 15 to 20 years that the consensus has gotten right? I mean, let's really sit down and think. What, Where are the ones, where's their dude I called it moment? I mean, I'm sitting here absolutely dunking on all of these MDs on Twitter because I'm, you know for two summers, sanded doors and had to wear a mask and was sort of generally convinced of the effectiveness of masks. And here we have essentially the same group of jokers who were for endless wars in the Middle East, the same group of jokers who were convinced that uh, the real estate market in the United States would be fundamentally uncorrelated, the same jokers who thought that Barack Obama represented the end of history, and the same jokers who are in charge of the mask production slash mask recommendation slash U.S. response to the coronavirus. They haven't been able to say, dude, I called it, in my entire lifetime. And so if there's anything good that's going to come out of this quarantine, it just has to be that no one is going to take it all seriously. I I would have to just say something like the journalist class, the pundit class, people who get paid to go on advertising-supported platforms and give somebody else's opinion. The tide has been going out for those people for a while, and it's finally over for them. But the people behind them, the people writing the papers, the people they call for background on certain topics, they, I think, are also in hot water over the corona situation because it shows again, the weakness of the passive strategy. Do nothing in this case, do nothing in that case. Sort of whatever happens, please do nothing because we have sort of set the game up in such a way that the thing we'd most like is for very little to change. And it's really hard to sort of put that on to any particular political party, any particular class or profession or anything, because it does operate so much in the background not only of maybe society, but of people's minds. You know Whether or not that is, in effect, what you live your life to do, basically, to prevent change, I, I suspect very strongly that that is not the story that you tell yourself. Um, and maybe you would even be unaware that this is how you live. But I think this group of people exists. This group of people has existed for a very long time. And they are the ones who, when they hear the Lenin quote, that there are decades when nothing happens, and weeks when decades happen, they won't get excited. They'll start getting nervous. And maybe they should be nervous, because they have set up a situation, a very strange situation, where the active agent for change is actually doing nothing. It's staying home. It's not going to work. It's not paying your bills. It's withdrawing from society in all kinds of ways, which are supposed to blow up the economy and do all very bad things, the way of sort of resisting that is to do nothing. And this is much easier than emptying the wine onto uh, the streets of St. Petersburg or various other revolutionary acts in the past. Now, is it the case that we need a sort of political revolution, or social revolution, or any revolution at all? I, I would sort of be very hesitant to say yes, because you have people who have been saying that for quite a long time who I will never be on the same team with. The sort of revolution as a culturally interesting position to have. Sort of the cocktail party revolution crowd. It's really not what what I'm about. Just because many of the people who are opposed to the dominant activities of society today are jokers, don't know what they're talking about, are sort of of the hipster crowd and prefer just to live in opposition to something. That doesn't mean that all the criticism of general day-to-day operations in the world are motivated by cocktail party intentions. It doesn't mean that the criticisms shouldn't be voiced, or that they're even wrong. And since we're all in quarantine, we're all sitting around to have a lot of time to to think, reflect. One of the things I think that'll help us not go crazy is thinking about the various ways in which the past ten years have been messed up, and how, when you go back to work, maybe at the same job, maybe at a new job, that things will need to change. And I think it. You know, do we have universal health care, universal basic income, all of the sort of political economic questions about how you design society? I think that is almost beside the point. And I have very little to, to say on either side. I think the most important thing is recognizing that our society and our culture is primarily based on something which we find ugly. And reprehensible, and that is consumption. We hear from consultants, from the Davos crowd, sort of the cosmopolitan consensus that the United States has transitioned to a, sometimes they say, service or consumer based or consumption based economy. And I sort of went back and forth in thinking, you know, which. Which term is really more derogatory, consumer-based or consumption-based? You know, Consumption is an activity, and because it's an activity, it's very close to the act of doing it. When you hear consumption, you, you think of gluttony. You think of excess and sort of consumption and refinement. There's a, there's, a, there's a tension there. Consumption and beauty, there's a tension there. So in that sense, consumption is a sort of ugly word. But then you think consumer, okay, consumer is a person, and consumer is all of us, it's none of us, right? It's hard to, to really say who the consumer is, but it, it is more or less our dominant function. And I think when you go and look at all of the projections now that the economy has been shut down, you know, what is really causing the, the issues? We thought it would be, in the early days, supply chain. You know, companies aren't going to be able to buy stuff from China. And some of the, you know, people on the right were very excited. They said, finally, you know, this is going to bring the jobs back. This will, this will really help the president, and it's going to be American ingenuity. Uh, certainly that has not happened. By all accounts, much of the supply chain is back in action, and it's the demand side that is going to take a while to come back and is even much more necessary for economic functioning. And so should we really be excited to rush back to that? right it, does it not bother anyone else that our primary purpose on a social level is consumption i mean this is think of you know we always had um various kinds of boycotts and they were generally sort of a political niche on the left or the right would boycott you know say i'm not going to use Gillette razors or i'm not going to use products that advertise on fox news or, or you know various kinds of left-right divide, sort of the antiquated political situation is dealing with boycotts. And there's a reason to be very nervous about boycotts, because boycotts, again, are sort of micro version of reinforcing the idea that your primary purpose on a social level, your primary contribution to the world is consumption. It's actually just consumption. It's not you. It's not anything about what you do. It's not anything to do with who you help or what you create or build or stand for. It's just the fact that you need food and water and would like to have a place to stay. that That's, that's the core of you. And you understand now why there's something so malicious in the do-nothing-against-corona idea. Because that's the manifestation of the consumer-driven economy. That's where it gets you. It says, all change is on the table except for the change that asks, is our primary purpose as consumers what we want our primary purpose to be? And here, I would say there is a growing crowd which views the United States and parts of Europe, parts of Western Europe, as entering a new level of decadence. And of course, decadence and consumption are, are twins. They are linked. I think decadence is even something to be hopeful for in our current situation. With, with decadence, it's over the top. It's, it's corrupt. But shouldn't it at least produce great art? Shouldn't it nurture certain parts of society which can't survive in tough times? And when times are so good, they become decadent. Shouldn't we at least get a kind of payoff? I think we really haven't even had much of that. And if we want to think about maybe the last time the world found itself in a decadent, consumer-driven place, we are once again turning back to the early 20th century. Or the term I prefer is the long 19th century. Oftentimes history people will sort of redefine the centuries from you know the date markers to sort of era markers. And a very common one to redefine is the long 19th century. And generally, you have sort of different ways you can play with it. Some people say the 19th century starts with the Declaration of Independence or the American Constitution, but the most common is the French Revolution in 1789. And generally, then that goes to something to do with World War I, either the beginning of World War I, the US's entrance into World War 1, the end of World War 1. So you generally have you know 1789 to 1914 is probably your most common long 19th century. And so I think, you know, on a on a historical level, if there are different stages to be in different kinds of eras to be in, we're not at the World War 1 part. We're just realizing we're at sort of the say 1904 Part Right. Sort of the the days before. I don't know, collapse, but very decadent days, waltzes in Vienna and Champagne in Paris and sort of thriving economy, you know, hyped up on the fruits of empire. That's certainly where we are. That, That was even maybe a growing view amongst some before Corona. And I think it's even more exposed now because we saw the United States, which used to be a great industrial power, a very inventive country, was caught completely flat-footed in responding to the virus. Some of that is uh, a problem with one or two leadership positions. And I would say most of it is a problem with the state of our government, the fact that our bureaucracy is completely dysfunctional and that the, the quality of people in it I don't, you know, it shouldn't be too demeaning here, but it's not what it was in 1950. So, if that was the last consumption driven era, the last decadent era, and we want to look back to that, figure out, okay, how do we get out of that? What kinds of things were people thinking back then? So how many of them apply to now? Here's a controversial quote from that age or about 20 years before. It's from 1880. And this, I think, needs to be considered not a tweet. This is a retweet. I'm not endorsing this view. I am making it known that this view exists. And I think it's important to know that this view actually exists. It's not a parody. It's not something that sort of was never thought, but, oh, God, wouldn't it be terrible if it was? This was a view. Maybe it wasn't the dominant view, but it was a powerful view. It's gone today. It's, no one defends this. But it did exist. Um, and it can tell you a little bit about you know how history ended up. And this is The sort of positive good school, not of slavery, but of war. And in 1880, a German general by the name of Helmut von Moltke, and he had a son with the same name, so generally they call this guy von Moltke the Elder, who was a kind of national hero for how he performed in the Franco-Prussian War. In 1870, Prussia, which was soon to become Germany, declared war on France, they fought, they beat France rather quickly, and they declared the nation-state of Germany in the Palace of Versailles in 1871. von Moltke is one of the heroes of that era, and he fits sort of a parody of what you think of as a, you know, Prussian or German general. But he's got a view on consumerism, Um, and it's that war keeps you away from it. Now, maybe a question we don't want to ask ourselves too much is, which is worse? But here's his quote. He says, Eternal peace is a dream, and not even a beautiful one. War is part of God's world order. Within it unfold the noblest virtues of men, courage and renunciation, loyalty to duty, and readiness to sacrifice at the hazards of one's life. Without war, the world would sink into a swamp of materialism. Well, I'm not saying you necessarily should have more war to get us out of the swamp of materialism. But I am saying we've got a lot less war today than 19th century or 17th century or early 20th century Europe. And we certainly have a lot more materialism. And materialism, maybe that's a bit of an antiquated term, right? But consumerism let's say. I'm not suggesting an outbreak of violence, and I genuinely do not think it's necessary. I think all you need to prevent sort of the endless consumerism that this virus has really exposed as the core of our existence is a recognition that we're kind of shadows of what humans used to be, that our general activities are imitations, they're empty, and they're driven by, what, sort of base desires, you know, mutated um, visions of, of what the future should look like. And I know that's a very large ask. A lot of people are tied up in this ideology and a lot more are tied up economically, but I do think we should be hopeful that things can can change, that you get assistance from, from chance with the occasional corona outbreak, and maybe the tide starts to go the other way, because I think it really has been consumerism, consumerism, consumerism for many, many decades, and there has not been an effective counterpoint to it, and Much of that is even the fault of the people who are supposed to be producing the antithesis. There is no viable alternative. You know, maybe the thing to think of is less on the practical level. What treatise can I write tomorrow which will convince people that uh, fundamental rethinking of what society is for must occur? Maybe we should think on historical terms first. So we have the long 19th century. That was mentioned. I think it was actually a, a Russian literary critic that first came up with the term long 19th century with those sort of iconic dates, 1789 to 1914. You have various ways of thinking about the 20th century with a similar sort of branding. Um, you have historians who call it the Long War, and they say it's 1914 to 1991, start of World War One to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that basically tells the story of battling ideologies, communism, democracy, fascism. And I suppose you throw empire in there as sort of the one that dies um, first. I'm not saying that's right. You know, People who are involved in history as a profession or in school can really debate the you know, which dates are exactly right and are there counterpoints to this, but just get in very broad terms, thinking that's a way that the 20th century can be characterized, similar to how you can characterize the 19th century. Um, you have this British Marxist historian who kind of subdivides the, the long 19th century into three ages, which I very much like. Um, he, he says, 1789 to 1848 is the Age of Revolution. And that basically works on an intuitive level if you think it's the French Revolution to the revolutions of 1848. That's generally how they're known. This was you know, not especially well known to me, um, and I'm a fan of history, but in Europe there were outbreaks in many, many cities, Paris and Vienna and Berlin, of sort of revolutionary activity with varying degrees of success, but mostly they failed. This was when Marx and Engels were Uh, alive and kicking, as the saying goes, and, you know, it was basically a flop, but certainly there was energy there. He then goes, okay, Age of Revolution into the Age of Capital, which is 1848 to 1875. Why 1875? If you kind of look in the introduction of uh, when he explains the dates, it doesn't actually have a great reason. One of them is there was a sort of financial panic in 1873, was in Europe and in the United States that brought on a depression of you know, some m- number of years. Some people say it was like 20 years. I find that very hard to believe. Maybe it was like five years. So it's a, you know end of the age of capital, but also the rise of empire. Um, and that's the last of the ages of the 19th century, the age of empire, which he pins at 1875 to 1914. You can, of course, quibble with them but I like the framing, and I was trying to think, okay, let's say we'll we'll accept those names as rough categories for 19th century history, and we'll even take the long war for 20th century history and say, right, we're going to have long 19th century, short 20th century. That implies long 21st century, and if that starts in 1991, what do we call this first chapter? first age. I'm not saying it's ending now. Maybe it's only ramping up. But if we start in 1991 and go to 2020, what age am I going to say we're in? If you've listened this far, you might have a guess and say it's the age of consumerism. No, I think it's the age of globalism. Now, globalism is now all of a sudden this very controversial term. You know, If you say that, all of a sudden... People imagine you you sitting with a MAGA hat on and sort of this unthinking person who, when they see something they don't like, they just say, globalist, globalist. It's pretty much the opposite of what I want to do. I, I think the important thing when you say the age of globalism is to understand how it's a fundamentally different world from prior ages. That is, what is most different about 1991 to today versus the prior ages is the extent to which things are globalized. This is the internet, this is information technology, it's trade, it's culture. This is probably not that controversial of a branding. This would not get a prize for a history thesis. It is not especially new. However, if what is required in order to prop up another great capitalist age, this age of globalism, is transforming humanity into a shadow of itself, that that price is too high. I was trying to think of a good way to sum up the problem I think the virus revealed, that the quarantine revealed, in sort of American society. And I remembered... A joke that I, I heard her read about the um, about the USSR and the joke is about a corrupt policeman or a policeman in a corrupt world who suspects his wife is cheating on him and so one day comes home early and sort of unexpectedly and he finds his wife sitting up sort of looking very flustered in bed and he sort of slowly walks into the bedroom you know in an investigatory way and He bends down, looks under the bed, and sees the wife's naked lover. And the lover's holding out a wad of rubles. And the policeman, being in the world he's in or being the man he is, takes the rubles, stands back up, looks at his wife and says, go along, there's no problem here. Now, that's the USSR. What's the American version of this joke? I think the American version of this joke is that it's just an honest policeman, not a corrupt sort of police. I mean, it's just an honest guy, right? sort of a normal person who is just bribed, right? He's not corrupted. He's, he actually just sort of makes the calculus. Well, you know, do I want to uh, blow up the marriage, lose all my stuff, um, or do I just take the bribe and sort of let this thing keep rolling? And he, he just takes the bribe. And I think this joke the American version anyway, where it's just sort of an honorable policeman who's just bribed uh, purely in monetary terms, paints this shadow picture, which is that, yes, they're human beings, but if you played that same kind of game in 1950 in America or 1850 in the UK, you would not get that kind of reaction. You could not get that kind of reaction. And I'm not saying, you know, this is, there's any kind of statistical test you could run to figure out, oh, how many people would willingly take a bribe you know, to <laughs> basically be cucked. But I do think let's understand that that is the level of thing that is at stake when we accept unquestioningly that the economy needs to get back into action in the way that it was before as quickly as possible. I'm not saying blow up the economy or transition to any kind of communism or socialism or any of that. I just want everyone to sit back and think long and hard about what the economy really was. And if you are sort of asking yourself what you are supposed to do during a quarantine, maybe ask yourself during the quarantine what you're supposed to do when you're not in a quarantine. And If you don't have a good answer to that question or you think your answers are sort of tinged with uh, ideological distortions, then, you know, welcome to the fringe.